Good morning. Uh, we're here on a, kind of a snowy day here in Kansas where I'm stuck, snowed in at home with a dog scrabbling at the door trying to get in the room I'm in, so please excuse any background noise or any issues. Um, but here with uh, Mark Fidelman, who is the author of Socialized, um, also a very popular Forbes columnist um, and the CEO of social business agency Evolve. Uh, Zeno Weist from XBeyond was supposed to be with us this morning. Unfortunately, due to the snow and, and travel issues, uh, she's on her way back from New York right now and can't join us. But Mark, thank you for taking time out this morning. And first thing I wanted to do is kind of touch a little on your professional background. We know you obviously from Socialized, as a lot of people know you from and from Forbes. But really curious about the work you do behind the writing, the work you actually do on the brand side. I'm wondering if you could share a little background and, and kind of fill people in on that a bit. Yeah, sure. No, I've uh, first of all, I won't mention where I am or what the weather's like here because uh, don't want to make anyone jealous. But uh, room temperature. Uh, anyway, uh, so my background is I've spent the last three or four years helping companies, including companies I work for, become more social. And so I've got the chance to experiment with all this stuff on my own testing all sorts of different techniques and methods and tools in order to help socialize a business. And now, um, just fast forwarding to today, now I've uh, taken this whole concept and I've said, okay, we can help you become a social business, but also specifically what we found to be uh, to work the best for us was to do what's called influencer engagement and management. So that's primarily what we focus on. And we do help you become a social business, both internally and externally. But our focus uh, would be on influencer management and influencer engagement. Okay, so with the work that you're doing, um, obviously you've had the column, you've you've been working with brands. What inspired you to take that to the next level? What was it that then made you say, okay, I've got to get a book out? Um, obviously, the exposure is great, but what was the motivating factor? What challenges did you encounter with brands? What what really pushed you to take a message, and then with that message, what was your primary goal? What was the primary takeaway you wanted people to have from the book? So, you know, there was a lot of discussions about social media, uh, but there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a playbook for how do you apply social media, concepts, culture, all the things that come with being a more collaborative, transparent organization. There wasn't a playbook that was out there yet. It was just kind of, okay, all these concepts that all these opinion leaders and thought leaders had. So I said, well, I'm going to take my experience, and I'm going to go interview 150 executives plus. I, I, didn't even, I lost track uh, of how many I actually talked to. And I'm going to encapsulate these learnings in an easy-to-read, fun, but detailed book. This is not a fluff book. You, know, you see a lot of these social books that are fluff. This is fun, engaging, and it actually shows you exactly how to become a social business. Okay, and that term itself, social business, um, it's become something of a buzz phrase. It's thrown around very freely, um, and I think often people don't really understand what it means. They have a disconnect between doing social and being social, and they assume that just because they have a Facebook page, they're engaging consumers, that they're a social business. Maybe you could explain a little what the definition is you, you would you know, use of a social business um, what the requirements are to be there, and maybe an example of who you think is doing it really well. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the same thing. You know, uh, there's some confusion as to what a social business is, but it, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, if the difference between social media 
in social business is that I look at social media as kind of the tactics. And I look at social business as the strategy. This becoming a social business is a strategy. That is, there there are businesses that have kind of learned the philosophy and strategies of using social technologies to create more adaptive businesses. You know, think of a think of a kind of think of a new kind of business that's agile enough to capture new opportunities, uh, but can change when confronted with you know the threats that are out there, uh, and can call on these vibrant communities to support. Their initiatives. You know, a lot of companies aren't used to working with communities, or used to working with third parties, like the newspapers and uh, all these third-party uh, paid media. What I'm saying is that you can do this through your influencers, your advocates, and people that uh, are more familiar with the brand. So it's including your employees, you know, partners and suppliers. So social business is a much, much more strategic approach. Uh, to becoming social, whereas social media are just some of the tactics of becoming a social business. And something you just touched on there, you, you mentioned about your employees, um, and employees often make the best advocates for a company, even more so than the customers, but something you've talked about a lot is, is that to be a social business, the process has to start within. Uh, so it goes back to those employees. So maybe, maybe you could explain a little more what you mean about that, what the process is of starting within and why that really is so critical to the evolution. Well, it really is. I mean, if you look at um, you know people that are social that are out there, I know a lot of them that are working with large corporations. But when that information becomes internal, right? I mean, social business is, is about obviously external, um, connecting with people externally directly and not through third parties. But when the information comes back in the form of feedback, in the in the term, in the form of leads, and in, in the in the form of all these different varying types of communication that could potentially help the business, if the business isn't ready to receive it internally, then most of that is wasted. About ninety-five percent is wasted, according to what I've seen out there. I mean, I, I could tell you there are a lot of frustrated social media people within these within the Fortune five hundred that are doing all this great stuff. Yet when it hits the, the firewall of a corporation, it stops right then and there, and that's a shame. And that's why you got to start with internal. So what, what would you say are some of the best ways of doing that, the best ways of empowering um, you know, policies, procedures? How would you go about encouraging a brand to empower their employees? Well, first of all, I'd say read the book. And I'm not just saying that. But really, I've, I've taken the time to really understand that. You know, Anywhere from culture. I have a culture test. There's really... I think I've identified five cultures, and only three of which are worth pursuing a social business right away. If you don't have three, if you're not one of these three cultures, I do give you, it's called a beachhead strategy to getting social within the organization, but ultimately the executives have to sponsor the initiative. It is a big change. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying this is something that you could do overnight. I'm saying it takes time. But when you take the time to become a social business, the benefits will be tremendous. And 100% of the change agents, these champions that help social, uh, businesses become social, have promote, been promoted and been paid more. So it's uh, a pretty easy proposition to sign up for if you're ready for it. It totally is, and it makes so much sense. Yet the reality is you've got a lot of organizations where there is that resistance to the change, sometimes fear, sometimes skepticism. Now, do you feel that you've got the, you, obviously, ultimately, you have to have the C-suite buy-in to, to completely execute the change, but for, for businesses where the it's more of a grassroots movement, where it's coming up from below, what would you say to those people that are trying to push it up with resistance from the top? Is it something where they can be, 
a movement that starts at the bottom and is successful? Yeah, I mean, I, I call it the red velvet uh, rope kind of philosophy is just get three or four people to make it work and then let word leak out amongst the corporations. You almost have to go rogue or what I call hacking the workplace. You've got to hack social into the workplace, make it work. If it doesn't work, uh, you know, not many people know about it, but when it does work, let word leak out. Encapsulate and capture uh, the, the key lessons, the learnings, what went well, what didn't go well, and then present it to an executive you feel will be most receptive to the plan. Have them sponsor it and to get the rest of the organization behind it. It's very simplistic. I'm not saying this is easy. Again, and you'll see in the book many examples of those that did make it and, and some that didn't, frankly. Now, in, in that process, obviously, there's a lot of challenges that they might face, um, you know, both departmental and brand-wide. What are some of the biggest challenges you, you've seen on that journey towards being a social business, and, and how have people overcome them? What, what advice would you give to, you know, first, addressing those hurdles, and second, moving past them, and, and really finding that success? Yeah, I, I think internally, it's uh, the adoption of, of a, so if you choose a social platform, it's getting adoption, that social platform, I think that's critical. Uh, and that's a major challenge because it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to become a social business. We have the right culture. We have the right attitude. We're, we're very transparent. But you do need a technology as a foundation to support it. I actually call this the digital village. You know, it harkens back to the old villages where we were more communicative. We knew who the experts were. We just felt more connected to the organization. But you do need now because we're so spread out. We're working in cubicles. There's a lot of us that don't know each other's names. You do need this, the technology that helps us feel connected and connects us to the rest of the people in the organization. So, so the challenge, I think, is, is adoption of the social platform and then getting people to share information in a way they've never shared before. So that's interesting because often we hear the argument that technology disconnects people, um, but in the right way, technology is actually really enhancing relationships, is actually connecting people um, in a way that doesn't replace personal relationships, but it's really you know, breaking down so many of the silos, breaking down so many of the barriers, and it's that technology combined with social interaction which is facilitating the change, and is that right? You have to have both together? Yeah, I, I would agree with you that technology, if you really look at it, in some cases like mobile technology, I don't think it's a uh, cause us to, to be uh, you know, further apart, unless you're talking about people that are texting you know, right next to each other, or I'm on my phone and my wife and my kids are playing around. I understand all that, but yes, uh, some technology has caused us to become more removed from the organization. We feel less connected, but these social platforms are doing exactly opposite. They're making us feel more connected. We're communicating more online. We're sharing information. We're feeling more collabor collaborative, and all that has a net positive benefit on the organization. Now, I'm going to sidetrack a little. The concept you talked about, the, the digital village, I want to come back to that, but before I do, um, we've been seeing this week a couple of high-profile examples of brands that have been dealing with a social media crisis. Um, obviously, the brand jacking that we have with Burger King and then with Jeep. Um, so a couple of questions on that. The first one really is, you know, how do you think, as businesses, they responded? What could they have done different? What did they do well? And the second part is, you know, what should every business be doing to prepare for that type of crisis? What type of plan should they have in place? Should they be concerned? How proactive do they need to be? Yeah, I, I don't think either one of them responded appropriately or fast enough. Uh, but I, I do say, you know, have a, you know, make sure you have a, a strong enough password where it can't be hacked. I mean, anything can be hacked, but uh, you know, I, I'm guessing that these passwords weren't very, uh, weren't very secure or, or 
I, I guess in the case of Burger King, there was a bunch of people on the team that had access to the, uh, to the password and maybe they leaked it to somebody. So the, the first thing is make sure you have good password control over the, uh, over the account itself. Secondly, you know, when something goes wrong, and you know, brands need to do a better job of this, but when something goes wrong, just be human about what, what happened and, and explain in human terms to people, hey, this is what happened to us. This was a bad actor. Um, you know, we don't contone this type of thing. And you know, most people want to forgive the brand if they come across as, as human. So that's number one. You know, and every situation is different. I'm not saying that this is a one-size-fits-all. Secondly, and uh, this isn't widely reported. I haven't done a lot of reporting on it. I think I put this in my, uh, my book uh, in a detailed way. It might have been just superficial. But there are companies today being green-mailed. So these companies are being threatened from you know, Asian bad actors uh, and organizations, criminal organizations over in uh, Eastern Europe with, hey, we're going to destroy your reputation as a brand. We'll make some stuff up, and we've got a million zombie computers that are going to retweet this whole thing and make a big story out of nothing unless you set a wire for a million bucks. This has actually happened. It happened to Dell uh, a few years ago. And uh, what brands need to realize is this is only going to get worse. You know, there's going to be a lot of things that happen in the future that um, you know, you're not even aware of uh, are happening behind the scenes and all of a sudden take you by um, take you by storm. One of the examples is Greenpeace, what they did to Shell. You know, they set up these dummy websites and made it look like Shell was putting out these obnoxious advertisements. When it wasn't Shell at all, it was Greenpeace. The key here is to have a community of people, your advocates, your influencers, your employees, partners, and suppliers that are ready on the turn of a dime to step in and push back this negative wave of criticism, whatever it is, whatever it's made up or whether it's real. You've got to have that community around you. I think of the Verizon. You remember the Verizon guy that always had these people drop in from you know uh, from uh, from the sky to help anyone with a bad connection problem. You need that around your organization in the future in order to mitigate some of these issues that are going to come up. And that that's going back to that digital village you talked about, um, both you know internally, externally. Right. So with these with these advocates that are out there. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of talk about advocacy, about influence, um, about engaging with influencers. Maybe you could touch on that too, of, of where there's all this talk about influence engagement. How is that different from you know, advocacy engagement, and how do you go about really engaging, finding, and empowering those advocates? Yeah, I, uh, well, advocates are easier than influencers to engage because, by definition, advocates already are in love with your brand or your product or what have you. And I use Apple's example of, you know, that's the height of, of where you want to get to. Most of us will never get there. But um, so advocates already are in love with your brand, but you know companies got to learn how to bring them into the fold. You know, bring in, bring in, bring them in as part of the innovation process. When there's a new product, let's bring them in and, and ha have them help us uh, decide what should be in the ne next product. Or maybe you test messaging on them, or maybe you just reward them for being brand advocates. You invite them to dinners, you invite them to events. You give them free tickets for things, whatever it is. You just keep them happy, and they will. You know, they've got uh, either their own network or they have followers that they're going to be talking about how great this brand is on a regular basis. And because their followers and, and their friends are like them, they're more likely to to buy from you as well. Influencers, on the other hand, you know, are very influential people um, in your in your industry, and some of them have what I call the Oprah Book Club effect. And that means when they start endorsing your product or talking about your product, there's a mad rush to go buy it. 
So it's it's important that you you connect with these people. Now it's easier said than done. You know these people have thousands of companies and people coming at them a, a lot. But the important thing, and this is all in the book too. The important thing is to do something for them first and do it on a regular basis. So what I like to do with my companies is we go out and we reward the influencers, uh, whether publicly, you know, on a tier one media site, we reward them for you know how influential they are. Uh, put their picture up there. We do these top 25 lists. Very, very, very successful. And then we start to develop relationships with them offline. It's not always about online. And once you develop the offline relationship, which is more powerful than the online relationship, you start to see if they like your products or services, your brand. And if they do, then you work with them on these social campaigns to get the word out about what what the company's trying, you know, what issues the company's trying to solve. Okay, that, that's a, an interesting point because right now the a lot of the buzz around influencer marketing, the biggest the hurdle I've found, you know, I've received different perks and rewards from, from companies and it doesn't seem sustainable. It seems that it's something, it's a quick hit, there's no follow-up, there's no focus on on building a long-term relationship. Do, do you think that's a broken system or a misunderstood system? <clears throat> I think it's an old PR model that's broken and has been broken for a while and it's a shame that agencies and, and companies and, and PR firms are continuing to do the same thing. You know, hit them with the message, hope they do something with it, and then move on. Where our whole approach for my company is, no, we're going to build deep, engaging relationships with those influencers, at least the ones that are receptive to our product or, or service. And over time, we're developing things together, uh, kind of like the advocates. But I might even hire an influencer to help me uh, work on just getting the word out about my product or service if they like it. It's important. It's got to be authentic. Uh, there has to be something that's authentic that the influencer actually likes. I wouldn't go the inauthentic route, you know, just pay an influencer just because they're influential. I would look, you know, Oprah just doesn't, you can't pay Oprah to be on the Oprah book club. She has to genuinely like the product. The same thing with these influencers. Find the ones that really like what you're doing, the brand promise, the product, the service, and work with them to get the word out. And if you're doing that correctly, if you're identifying the influencers who do um, have a passion for your product and then you're nurturing the relationship, aren't you actually evolving them from just an influencer to an influential advocate anyway, which is so much more valuable? That is, that is absolutely the goal, uh, and there's a lot of ways of doing that, but it doesn't all work out for everyone. That's why we identify 25 and we start to narrow down who, who are the ones that we want to build a long-term relationship, mutually rewarding long-term relationship with. Great. And again, sidetracking a little, we um, recently were at the XP on Social Business Summit. I, I was there and talked to a number of brands and agencies. Um, Charlene Lee gave some great insights and others. And the theme of the event was smart social. We asked them for their perspectives on what smart social means to them. It's you know we've we've all been engaged in social. We've uh, been having what we did. I guess considered to be strategies, but really, really haven't evolved to the point we need to. So as we're moving into 2013, we need to get smarter in our approach. We need to really rethink what we're doing. So I'm curious, how would you define smart social? What does that mean to you? Well, first of all, I, you know, funny enough, I just wrote an article about it on on Forbes, and the epitome of what smart social is to me is what the Obama campaign did during his lit re-election. If you really look at what they did. And we don't have enough time here for me to cover it, but I'll give you one example of what they did. They basically look at the demographic and behavioral information that they had on voters in swing states that hadn't voted either in the last election or, or the last four elections. And I said, 
you know, they tend, based on demographics and behavior, tend to lean left. So if we could just get them to the polls, we're going to have a better shot at winning these swing states than our competitor. And so what they said is, we're going to not just reach out to them and get try to, you know, via phone or, or what have you, mail, get them the, to, to the voting booths. We're going to work with our 8,000 volunteers. There's 8 million volunteers nationwide, but I think there's 8,000 in the swing states that were important to them. And we're going to look at the demographic and behavior uh, and um, social information of our volunteers and match them eHarmony style, one-to-one -one with these potential voters. And it turns out um, that if somebody knocks on your door that's mu very much like you in, in, in many ways, the chance that you, you'd go to the voting booth was about 80%. If, if, if they got a commitment from you. So they use this technique, this eHarmony matching volunteers up with people that are potential voters in the swing states. Really, and I think if you talk to them, they say the same thing, to help win the election in these swing states. And that was just one part of the data that they used. Uh, so it wasn't just, you know, being smart social isn't, isn't just about using social technology smartly. I think it's looking at big data. It's, it's about analyzing, socializing, and mobilizing and how all that works together in order to really move the needle. Now when you apply this to business, the same thing can be done. Businesses today, in our research, are missing 90% of the social cues that are coming at them. Either they can't handle it, they don't have the tools to handle it, or they don't have the people to handle it. But if they were able to simply identify just by looking out at people that should be customers of theirs, but are not customers of theirs, in a very intelligent way, uh, that business would be far more profitable than they are today. So I think that's where we're going. You can read about it in, in the Forbes article that I wrote today. That, that's really very timely then. And then kind of as we're looking ahead more to 2013, you know, looking at some of the key trends that are out there, the big push through 2012, very much about um, content marketing, visual marketing. Um, as we're going into 2013, we've got something exciting brands are playing with, with Vine coming out and video coming into that mix. What are the key trends you're watching this year? What are the things that you're most excited about? Yeah, I, I would look at anything that Red Bull's doing. I mean, you, look, you think of Red Bull as an energy drink, but in reality, I think they're more of a media company. I mean, if you look at all the content that they're capturing in each of their events, they're not only using that content in their own advertising, but they're selling that content to other people as well. So they've turned into a media property that happens to sell beverages. It's quite remarkable, and it's a great case study if anyone's very interested in what, what's possible within your organization. I was talking uh, just the other day to a company that uh, you know sells car wax. I'm saying, look, you should model what, what Red Bull's done, and every event that you put on or you participate in, get the video rights and start using that video, especially amongst influential people in the car space, and using it in your advertising or using it in ways that will help everybody else that's into cars see that, hey, this is a product, this car wax is something that we should do or use on our cars because it, they've, they've linked the, the car wax to these influential people and these influential events that they, they attend or want to attend. And so there's this, this brand transfer, if you will, from these influential people, from these car shows to the brand. People recognize that and they want to be associated with it, so they want to be associated with your product. Uh, that's cool. And what do you think right now is the biggest missed opportunity for brands? You talked about the the missed engagement, the not hearing the signals. Is there something else, or is that it, or is what's the biggest thing brands need to change as they move into this year? Well, I mean, uh, 
it took me a while to figure this out, but I think big data and how you analyze social data and, and the key learnings from that uh, and making sense of all the data that's out there is the missing link for becoming a social business. Because a lot of businesses will try some social things and the, if it works out great, they continue down the path. If it doesn't, then they don't, they stop. You know, they say this is a waste of time. But the data really is the missing link in my mind. And it's the key to finding opportunities both internally and externally to improve the business or to, to get more customers. So I think brands need to start paying attention to the signals that are coming in, uh, both internally from employees, but externally from partners, suppliers, and customers. Try to make sense of them. I know the tools out there aren't quite there yet, but they will be in the next couple of years. And if you're ahead of the competition, uh, you're going to have a far superior position when these, these things all come together. So I would look at making sense of all the data that's, that's coming at you both internally and externally and, and turning it into actionable items. That's great advice to kind of wrap that up with. Thank you. And then the final question then, wrapping up our conversation, great insights you've shared today uh, for brands. Um, the book, Socialized, definitely if you know people haven't read it, they need to go get a copy. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. Um, the Forbes column. What's next for you beyond that? What are you working on? What What would you like people to know about? You know, what's next that you're focusing on personally? Yeah, I mean, uh, my company focuses on influencer engagement and management. Uh, so imagine if we were to take that to the next step and kind of codify uh, this into not something of a consulting arrangement, but something on a platform. So uh, imagine a platform of influence. Imagine what you could do with that. And um, you know, you'll see some things coming out from us in the night, over the summer that uh, are, are pretty game-changing. And where's the best place for people to connect with you and follow you, apart from um, at Mark Fidelman on Twitter? Where else should they be watching you? Yeah, I mean, uh, my website's not up yet because we're in stealth mode, but um, eventually it's going to be uh, evolves with an S, inc.com, and that will have everything that I do, the speaking, the book, the new business, and the consulting practice all on one website. Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time this morning. Um, I'm not jealous at all of the um, warm weather and the the, the, the steep snow we have here, but um, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.